Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today is day 91 of Occupy Wall Street. And to begin with, I want to thank the following saloners who have either made a direct donation to the salon or who paid for a copy of my Pay What You Can audiobook, my novel, The Genesis Generation, all proceeds of which are also going to pay for expenses associated with these podcasts. And these fine souls are Alex A., Madeline D., Joe K., and Guy G. And I also want to thank our fellow saloners who bought one of my three Kindle books that are now available as well. Unfortunately, Amazon doesn't send me any information as to who you are, but I want you to know that I appreciate your support. So, thank you all ever so much. Your support really means a lot to me. Now, originally I was going to uh, slip in another talk by Terrence McKenna today, and I'll do that for sure in my next podcast, but after noticing the date, I felt that uh, it's more important to instead feature a few more ideas about the Occupy movement, which, as I see it, is primarily a movement of consciousness itself. You see, tomorrow, December 17th, 2011, is the one-year anniversary of the death by self-immolation of a young man named Mohammed Boazizi. And as you already know, it was this act that triggered what is now commonly known as the Arab Spring. And perhaps in honor of this man, you'll take the time to read something about him on Wikipedia or one of the many other websites that are honoring him now. Another reason I have for what I've included in today's program is that I've discovered that even among some of my closest friends, they have very little idea of how the current level of dissent that we are now calling the Occupy Movement came to be. I probably don't have to tell you this, but you are not the only person who has noticed uh, over the past few years that not only is life getting much more difficult for all but a few people in high places, in many cases hope itself has fled. Which is why I see the Occupy Movement as so critically important right now. Whether you realize it or not, if you have listened to the past uh, oh half dozen or so of these podcasts, you're already far, far ahead of almost everyone on the planet right now when it comes to an understanding of what is actually the heart of this new unfolding of consciousness in public spaces. While a lot of people, I'm sure, uh, have some awareness of demonstrators being shot, gassed, and arrested in cities all over the world, including most major cities in the U.S., well, you are uh, one of a not very large percentage of the people on the planet who also have some idea that there is a strong new undercurrent in human thought, and that, like an underground river, it has been running wide and deep for a long time. This isn't simply about camping out in public spaces. There is uh, much more to the storyline than that. In fact, at this very moment, video is streaming from Cairo showing an extremely violent clash between occupiers and the Egyptian military. So it's not just about uh, taking over a public space. Uh, significantly more is at stake. And so today I want to help you remember some current history in the 
hopes that maybe 50 years from now or so, when my generation is long gone, that there will still be some people around telling these stories to their grandchildren who, by then, will be living in the kind of world that we've been dreaming about ever since we first began walking upright. So, to begin, I'm going to play a short little audio collection that should by now sound quite familiar. And while you are listening, try and figure out where they were recorded. You've got people here from all over. You've got labor, you've got environmentalists, you've got teachers, you've got children, you've got coalitions between people of color and, um, and, and, um, and you know, mainstream white Americans. You've got middle class, you've got working poor, you've got poor. You've got everybody out here because this hurts people. This is bad for people. It's bad for our jobs here. It's bad for the people over there. It's about their future being traded off by corporations who frankly don't give a shit what happens to them. That's what it's about. That's what people are fed up with it. They understand it. The people united will never be defeated. You will remain calm. This would be a good time to put on your mask and goggles. Did you recognize that action? I'll bet that my friend Brian from Seattle recognizes those sounds because he was one of the videographers that recorded these events, which are now known collectively as the Battle of Seattle, and those mic checks and chants like Whose Street, Our Street, and This Is What Democracy Looks Like, well, they aren't something that just popped up for the first time at Occupy Wall Street. 
No, what you just heard was recorded in 1999, and many of the brave people who made the WTO back down over a decade ago are now on the front lines of the Occupy movement. Now, you might wonder why it took so long to get from the Battle of Seattle in 1999 to the battles for public spaces all over the country in 2011. But maybe a better way of looking at it is to consider the fact that a significant amount of progress has been made since 1999 in opposition to several thousand years of patriarchal domination by a small number of wealthy families. The blinders are finally coming off, and people in the U.S. are now becoming aware that while we may not have a king and queen, we still have royalty running the show. Only this time, it's an economic royalty that has taken over. Just stop and think for a moment. Right now, there are only 400 families who own over one-half of everything that there is available to own in this country. If that isn't a picture of 400 royal families, I don't know what is. So how did we get this way, you ask? Obviously, the reasons are multiple, complex, and intertwined. But one seemingly common thread is something called bribery. As a schoolboy, I was shocked to learn about how institutionalized bribery was in the Soviet Union and other nation-states, particularly in some of the poorer countries. Naively, uh, we thought that nothing like that could ever creep into our own culture. How simple-minded we were, because the United States has actually elevated bribery to a high art form in the guise of privately funded political machines and candidates. To let you know that I'm not the only person who sees the American political system as completely corrupt, from the bottom to the top, the very top I should add, I'm going to play two short audio clips of people who have significantly more experience in this area than I'll ever have. The first is a short excerpt from a recent interview that John Stewart did with Lawrence Lessig, and I'm going to follow that with a few words from Bernie Sanders, who is a U.S. Senator from the state of Vermont and who may be the only honest person in the Senate. So, here are a couple of their thoughts about what's going on. I guess tonight, he is the director of the Edmund J. Saffer Foundation Center for Ethics at Harvard University. I didn't know they had one of those. And uh, a professor at Harvard Law School. His new book is called Republic Lost, How Money Corrupts Congress and a Plan to Stop It. Please welcome to the program, Lawrence Lessig. I mean, I think the problem is we have a system for funding where 0.05% of Americans max out in the congressional campaign. 0.26% give more than $200. So campaigns are funded by the tiniest slice of Americans. Not even the top 1%. No, no. So the uh, Occupy Wall Street people are so proud of their, we're the the 99%, bad marketing. We're the 99.95% who doesn't have access the way the 0.05% have access because they fund the campaign. This is the thing that congressmen are obsessing about all the time. They spend 30 to 70% of their time raising money, which means they're constantly focused on shape-shifting to get the money and to avoid doing things that might drive the money away. So it's no surprise that when they live in this life, they become dependent upon the funders as opposed to the people. And that is the corruption. They are dependent upon, not as the framers said, the people alone. They're dependent upon the funders. Right, because they're going to be responding to Mm -hmm. this tiny slice of America, which they do again and again, and surprise, surprise, that leads the rest of Americans to believe, as a poll we did for the book concludes, that money buys results in Congress. Three-quarters of Americans believe money buys results in Congress. Um, The libertarians are really keen at getting a small government. I'm not into that. I mean, a lot of people are, but I respect it. But the point is, you're never going to get a small government or simpler taxes as long as 
congressmen depend upon having a big government and complex taxes so they have someone to call to raise money. So you've got a special tax benefit. Your tax benefit's about to expire. Congressman has somebody to call to say, you know, we're going to need a lot of support if we're going to get this tax benefit extended. And so the point is to begin to see the way money links every issue we care about on the left and the right. I mean, obviously, issues on the left have been affected by money in this administration. But people on the right have got to recognize, too, that money blocks their ability to get what they're looking for. There's only one sacred text in this book, and that's John, that's uh, Henry David Thoreau. For every thousand hacking at the branches of evil, there's one striking at the root. The point here is this is the root. The money is the root. And unless we find root strikers who are willing to strike at that root, we're never going to fix this problem in Washington. I think what the protesters are doing in New York and across the country is extremely important uh, for two reasons. Uh, Number one, they are focusing attention on uh, the most powerful entity Uh, in our country, which is Wall Street, which is also the most secretive and I believe the most dangerous. Uh, Let's never forget, ever forget, that it was the greed and recklessness and illegal behavior of Wall Street which plunged us into this horrible recession, which resulted in millions of people losing their jobs, their homes, and their life savings. So we have got to continue to focus on the greed of Wall Street, and we've got to bring about real reforms to end the kind of abusive behavior that is taking place there. Uh, Second of all, uh, I think it is absolutely appropriate that the protesters are now forcing a debate and a discussion in this country on the huge issue of income and wealth inequality. It is very hard. We're right here, right? The United States Senate is, the floor of the Senate is 100 feet away from us. And I got to tell you, there are very few people who talk about that issue. Something I've been talking about for years. But we do have to ask whether it is morally and economically appropriate that 400 people in this country own more wealth than the bottom half of America, 150 million people. So that discussion is terribly good. Now, where I hope this movement goes is to generate grassroots activism, bring more and more working families, middle class people, young people into the political process to demand a progressive agenda so that the Congress, so that state legislatures, local government, begins to respond to the needs of ordinary people uh, rather than the incredible influence of big money. I apologize for the quality of the Senator Sanders clip, but some of these interviews are hard to find and are often done by young people with only a cell phone to record the conversation. However, just because the corporate media doesn't give a voice to people like the Senator, it doesn't mean that what they have to say isn't important. In fact, today the best news reporting isn't being done by the so-called professionals, but rather it's being done in small bits and pieces like the brief interview that we just heard. And as you could tell from the Daily Show clip, there's a lot more to the Lessig interview with Jon Stewart, and I'll link to that in the program notes for today's podcast in the event that you want to hear the entire interview, which I strongly urge you to do, by the way. So, what I want to do now is to play part of an interview that my friend Wild Bill from New York City turned me on to. In fact, I think I even played the phone message where he told me about this interview, uh, and that was back in podcast, I believe, 291, which I posted on day 66 of Occupy Wall Street. The interview, of course, is with David Graeber, who was one of the people involved with Occupy Wall Street from its inception, and interestingly, this interview took place on November 17th, which was the two-month anniversary of the occupation of Liberty Park in New York. 
And if you go back and re-listen to my Day 66 podcast, you can hear all that took place in New York City later that day. And uh, that was after this interview had concluded. But now let's join radio host Brian Lehrer on WNYC Radio. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. Good morning, everyone. And thank you, Richard and Ilya, for the latest from Occupy Wall Street and Lower Manhattan. We have a very special guest tying into that to start the show today. David Graber was an original organizer of Occupy Wall Street, a developer of the plan to do something on September 17th, a facilitator of the first General Assembly in Zuccotti Park on the first night of the occupation two months ago today. He is also a renowned anthropologist, activist, and anarchist, a cause celeb at Yale a few years ago for not having his contract renewed there, and author of a book published this summer about the history of debt. He was here on the show to talk about that book, Debt, the First 5,000 Years, not long before the Occupy movement began. So we will talk to David Graeber now about the origins of Occupy Wall Street, today's movement around the city, what can come next, and some more of his thoughts about debt on a day when Europe, the Congressional Super Committee, and a nation of underwater homeowners and student loan holders are obsessed with its grip. David Graeber, welcome back to WNYC. Thanks for having me. And you join us from Montreal today, I understand. I should point that out, that you're not in lower Manhattan and not taking part personally in uh, the direct actions of today. So take us, no. yeah. take us back to the summer. I think the day was August 2nd when you went That's to right. a protest in Bowling Green Park in lower Manhattan that was supposed to include a general assembly, and you wound up forming a splinter group. What happened that day? It's an interesting story. Um, I was back for the summer because I'm normally based in London, but I'm from New York, so I always come back when I can. And I was trying to catch up with what was going on in the activist scene. And people were talking about this idea that had been floated by ad busters for an Occupy Wall Street movement. I mean, you know, a lot of us were pretty skeptical. It's an incredibly heavily policed area. It's not clear that what people could do, but we heard about a general assembly, and that inspired a lot of people because thought of that going on in Europe at the time, in Spain and Greece, people trying to re- recreate grassroots democracy in Athens, um, in Barcelona and Madrid and other cities throughout Spain, and we thought that was a nice idea. Um, and if that's what's going to come out of it, it would be worth pursuing. So a few of us, me and my friend, showed up at this uh, announced general assembly on August 2nd to plan the Wall Street action on September 27th, or 17th, I'm sorry. And um, we were rather disgruntled to discover that it wasn't a General Assembly at all. It's one of these very traditional protest groups that sort of taken over the thing, and they had megaphones and kind of stage, and there was a rally of maybe 120 people, um, speakers, and they were going to march, and they had a list of demands, you know, the whole conventional thing. And some of us sort of looked at each other and said, we don't have to do this, you know? I mean, usually, I, I mean, it's, usually people see this and they're just sort of disgruntled and don't really enjoy it very much and go along for the ride because they feel they have no choice. And some of us said, oh, well, this time we don't have to take this. Let's, let's, let's have a real General Assembly. So, And what, what is, general, for our listeners who, you know, many, many folks still think General Assembly is something that only happens at the United Nations. So what is a real General Assembly? What was it that day, August 2nd, in Bowling Green Park? Well, it's something like the Athenian Agora is the idea. I mean, it's a 
probably significant that people in Athens are leading the way in creating this. Um, it's direct democracy. Uh, have a group of people without a leadership structure get together and come to decisions collectively. And people within the anarchist, anti-authoritarian, also feminist traditions in America have been working for years on how to do that. And we, we kind of know um, how you can conduct a meeting in a really democratic way. There's been a lot of people putting a lot of thought into that. But we hadn't really done it on a mass basis. Um, and we thought, well, let's try. Um, and so some of us, we formed a circle and decided to have a real meeting. Um, and, of course, people from the organizers came and said, no, 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 we're really going to have a general assembly. We just, we're just doing the rally first. And, you know, there was a back and forth, and we came there, and some of us spoke and were shooed off the stage. And it became clear that they weren't really going to do anything like that. So a bunch of us simply said, well, what the hell is it? We're just going to go have a real democratic meeting and see who shows up. So we formed a circle on the other side of Bowling Green, and gradually everybody started breaking off from the rally and came over to us. Well, I read and that's the real birth of the movement. Uh, and there, there it is. So in that telling, yeah. Occupy Wall Street grew more out of a rift among activists than a coming together. Well, people did come together. That's the thing. I mean, it turned out that almost nobody was really interested in, 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 in yet another rally. It was just the people who were part of this little group that sort of leads things. Um, everybody came over. We formed a democratic group. And even the people who were organizing the rally came and eventually took part. Um, and once we created a democratic group, everybody had equal say. Um, we went off, we formed little working groups. Um, we formed one group to talk about outreach and who we talked to, we, another group to talk about process, how we would actually do the democratic process, you know, for a model of modified consensus. Um, another group sort of brainstormed ideas for what we could actually do for actions. Um, then we came back, everybody reported back. We created a structure for having new meetings and uh, working group meetings, assemblies, and thus the thing was born. David Graeber, one of the organizers originally of Occupy Wall Street, also the author of Debt, The First 5,000 Years. And we can take your phone calls for him on sort of the prehistory and the early history of the Occupy movement. Also, if anybody's listening in lower Manhattan and wants to report on anything that's going on down there in real time, we will take your phone calls to you or anywhere else around the city that uh, any protests on this day of action on the two-month anniversary of the Occupy movement um, might be springing up, give us a call. Tell us what you're doing or what you're seeing, 212-433-WNYC-433-9692. And, David, to continue with the history, uh, Zuccotti Park was not the originally planned location for the September 17th initial gathering. It was like your fifth alternative or something, wasn't it? I can't remember whether it was number four or number five. We had a list. Um, but we originally, I believe it was Chase Plaza, which is not far from it. Uh, it's another private public sort of place. Almost all the parks down there are private public. And so we mapped out all the different places, and we announced one. But the thing is, if you announce something, even if it's just on a listserv for other activists, you always know there's going to be at least one cop on the listserv. And sure enough, um, the whole place was surrounded by giant fencing, even the night before. So that spot was blocked off. So we had a little map with different alternative locations. We distributed it to people. And then, you know, half an hour before the assembly was supposed to start, someone went around saying, okay, let's all go to number four. And that was Akari Park. 
So it was a way of kind of uh, ducking out of the view of the authorities, at least for a moment. Take us back then to that first night at Zuccotti Park two months ago. Do some oral history for us for the record books. What happened that first night that was important, and what was your role? Okay. Well, my role was as one of the facilitators. Um, we had a lot. All right. Well, what happened is we had the action, some sort of rally action um, at Bowling Green, where people were assembling and doing various teach-ins. The Reverend Billy preached. There was music. There was yoga. And it was a little festival. And then the real assembly was supposed to start at three. So we showed, and during that day, I was a little worried. You know, the numbers didn't seem huge. Um, we were, you know, we'd had this thing thrown in our laps. August 2nd to September 17th isn't a lot of time. If you're going to bust in tens of thousands of people, which is what adbusters have been imagining, you need months, and also you need money. We had no money at all. Um, so, you know, at first I was like, oh, oh, I guess we have a few hundred. That's okay, I guess. I was a little worried. And then by the time everybody came to Sukkani Park, you realized we had over 2,000. And so, yeah. go, so that go. was a lot of people and very difficult to have a meeting with 2,000 people. And what was your meeting about? If you were one of the facilitators, uh, what were you facilitating? Well, we had to decide what to do next. Um, we had various contingency plans, and different people had different visions on what to do. Um, we had to have 2,000 people meet together and come to a collective decision democratically about what course of action to take. And believe me, that's quite challenging, not just doing it democratically, but doing it in a space where people can't hear each other. We had microphones at that point, but we actually made a little mistake. Um, we thought it would be most democratic to form a circle. And some of the Spaniards who've been doing this before told us it was too late. Say, no, no, you never do a circle, you do a crescent. Because if you have a circle, people can't hear the, the facilitators. Um, so we were trying to aim the microphones in four directions at once, and it just didn't work. And that's when we adopted the people's microphone. It's the only way to do it. How spontaneous or how planned was the decision to begin camping out? It was one of the options we'd been considering, but we realized that a lot of people were going to be coming from out of town. We didn't know what people were up for, so we just created a framework. We had different ideas, and we decided we would democratically decide what to do. There were two major options that people were discussing. One was to go to Wall Street itself and try to camp on the street in front of the stock exchange. And Legally, there is a principle that if, as long as you're not blocking the sidewalk, you can sleep on the sidewalk, um, as long as you don't raise structures and so forth. We'd had that tested. A couple people had tried, got arrested. We got a judge affirm that the police didn't have the right to arrest us. So that was one idea. And the other idea was to occupy the park and turn it into a kind of a model village, a, a new democratic society. Um, it was hard to decide. There was, it was fairly well divided. More people were for the park, but we were working by consensus. We wanted to get everybody on board. So the final formulation we came up with was we weren't sure whether the police were going to allow us to stay, but we figured the one thing that the police least wanted was us to go to Wall Street. So we decided we would stay in the park, and if they evicted us, we'd go straight to Wall Street. <laughs> and you let the police know that? And you think oh, yeah. that allowed the encampment to really take root? I think it helped. Did you or anyone have uh, tents or sleeping bags that first night? I don't remember. I'm sure people must have had sleeping bags. Um, it was made quite clear that anything um, like a tarp, uh, they were pretty. They were being very strict about the rules at first. We kind of had to create that little space of freedom slowly. It, um, what 
we saw in the first couple of days was that the police had re clearly received orders to be incredibly strict of all the laws, to let us stay, but to try to make it sort of to intimidate us. So there were a lot of like petty illegal arrests or a couple people chanted in front of a bank and they arrested them for masking. They weren't actually masked. They had bandanas around their necks. Um, clearly an illegal arrest. There was another one uh, the next day, on the second day of the occupation, where some people were writing with chalk uh, on the sidewalk, which isn't actually illegal. They got arrested and everybody you know, in the area sort of started saying to the police, you know, writing of chalk on the sidewalk isn't illegal. And the cops said, yeah, I know. So there was a lot of that kind of thing. Um, the police said, well, we'll let you stay here, but we're not going to let you get away with anything. So it was only gradually we began to carve out more and more of an autonomous space to do more things. David Graeber, anthropologist, activist, author of Debt, The First 5,000 Years, one of the original organizers of Occupy Wall Street, on this two-month anniversary. And Jeffrey in Manhattan, you're on WNYC. Hello, Jeffrey. Hi. Uh, I'm just wondering how, if at all, social media influenced uh, the movement and what, how it helped it grow. Well, sure. It was incredibly important. Uh, I'll give you an example. The very first day, I went out and I sort of looked around and saw where the police were, where they were putting up barricades. And you know, I have a Twitter account, so I, I was sort of putting out tweets and um, sort of just giving an appraisal, appraisal of the situation, um, the Occupy Wall Street Twitter account apparently wasn't down there. Those guys weren't there yet. So they put out a notice saying, uh, David Graeber is down there. Uh, he seems to know what's happening. Everybody follow him for tactical information. Within two hours, I had 3,000 more followers on Twitter. And you know, within one hour, there were people in Spain who were translating everything I put out on Twitter into Spanish and retweeting it again. Speaking of Spain, Elizabeth in Glen Ridge has a related question, I think. You're on WNYC, Elizabeth. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Um, yeah, my question is uh, related to the 15M movement that started in Madrid in May of this <clears> year. <throat> and I was in Madrid when that movement started and through the whole movement and actually their expulsion from Seoul. And I see so many similarities in not only the beginning of the movement and why they were occupying Seoul and how it all developed as far as the tents and the kitchens and the libraries and I'm just wondering, I, I rarely hear any I don't want to say credit or acknowledgement but you never read anything where um, anyone from Occupy seems to be comparing um, maybe even giving a little bit of credit to what the, the, original, the protesters in Madrid had done first and I'm just wondering if that ever if it came up when you, in your planning process or Oh, some of the people in the planning process were from Spain Oh, we had Spaniards involved in the very beginning. Um, we also Greeks. Uh, so the ties were, were not just not just of ideas. Um, we actually had people who had been involved in that who came over mm -hmm. to help and, um, or who happened to be in the city anyway. And, of course, they were attracted when they found out people were doing the same thing. So there were a lot of Spaniards involved. You should have gotten some Germans. They have all the money. <laughs> well, we actually have a good deal of money at this point, more than we know what to do with. Elizabeth, what was that? What What are they after in Spain with the 15M movement? The 15M movement was um, perhaps David could tell you better, but I was always under the impression that it was a similar thing: the voice of the minority not being heard. <laughs> on economic issues for sorry, over yes. <laughs> over economic inequality. Uh, every yeah, from government to education to I mean, you know, the unemployment rate in, in Spain is just insane right now, and. Um, a lot of it was a very youth-based movement in the fact that I think 50% of people under the age of 26 are unemployed. 
um, and the living wage is nothing near what, what people are being paid. And it evolved in response to the government elections that were sort of get gathering movement, and they're not really being a party that was representing mm-hmm. what people needed. Elizabeth, thank you. David, you said the Occupy movement has more money now than it knows what to do with. How much money well, is that? I mean, at the beginning we had nothing. But um, almost as soon as it started, people started sending in contributions. Um, and almost all of it, like small $20 contributions. You know. um, we don't have any you know, sort of corporate sponsors, obviously. We don't have any big institutions, even labor unions giving us big money. But little people have given money in, and it's so much that, um, in fact, they, they have quite a, a large amount of funds. And it being a group that is decentralized, democratic, we don't like having a funding base. It kind of could create a hierarchy. So people are a little worried about that. How much money is that? I don't actually have the numbers at the moment. Is, is, the, is there like a checking account at a credit union that has Occupy Wall Street written on the checks? No, I, I think that it's an NGO. There's some friendly NGO lend an account. Um, I'm not on the finance committee, but um, there is one, and and that's used was used in keeping up the community. Um, you know, generators, things like that. And by the way, you left Ducati Park after the first few days. And went to Texas, as I understand. How come you didn't hang around? Was it just that you had other personal or professional business that was pressing? I had personal um, matters down there. I had been intending to go down there for a couple of months anyway. But, I mean, there's also a feeling that I was kind of being developed as a leader because I'm a fairly well-known person. I have this book on debt. And so I kind of felt this is a youth movement. I'm older. Maybe I'll step aside for a while is good, you know, to, like, let this thing develop autonomously. I'll be back in a week and um, participating as much as I can. So because you were interested in this idea of Zuccotti Park as what you call the model city, as you watched from afar... How successful was it? It's so rare that anything actually tries to do that, even on this relatively small scale. But by most accounts, things were deteriorating in the park before the mayor and the police ousted uh, all the structures, despite the best efforts of the General Assembly members to create a model society, a caring society, a good neighbor policy, and everything else. It only took a different kind of 1% to make the scene too dangerous, too dirty, too distracted from the main message of change in society at large for economic justice. What do you think? I don't think that's really true. It's not the impression that I had. I mean, there was an attempt to try to, you know, direct people who might be disruptive, but we know that 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 was quite intentionally going on. There's always attempts to disrupt things like that and to try to, like, subvert the model. But, in fact, I think almost anybody who spent any time there came out of it feeling completely transformed, um, you know, for all the problems. If you're looking at it from outside, you know, sure, you can make a big thing out of that. But I don't think people who are actually living there, I mean, they created amazing institutions. They created a, a huge library, which, of course, the mayor then trashed and dumped into a dumpster. Um, uh, kitchens, medical tents. Um, there's incredible things coming out of it. Let's go live to Zuccotti Park right now, where WNYC's Bridget Bergen is reporting. Hi, Bridget. What's happening? Hi, Brian. Uh, well, right now, the protesters actually just moved the barricades on the east end of the park. Uh, and, it, you know, since they had cleared out the park, the entire park had been surrounded by these barricades. So there had been so many people who gathered on the sidewalk outside of the park that they actually moved a section of them. And then hundreds of people just sort of filed in. There's a big group of them in the park right now. I had seen a report, Bridget. I don't know if you were 
down at Wall Street to be able to confirm this or not, but I had seen a report on one of the major networks that protesters were trying to block subway exits so people couldn't get to work on Wall Street. Uh, that would be very dangerous if true, but I don't know if it's true. Can you confirm it or refute it? I can't confirm that. I didn't see anyone trying to block access to subways. What I can tell you is that the police had to create barricades across intersections throughout the financial district. And so maneuvering throughout the area was incredibly challenging all morning. Protesters would get to an intersection. They would, you know, they would fill the intersection. Sometimes they would sit in the intersection. And then there would be pathways along the edges for folks who were trying to move around the protesters. And one thing that I witnessed consistently was you know, police officers giving conflicting directions to folks who were trying to get to work. I don't think it was necessarily intentional, but, you know, people would be trying to get to Broadway, and they've been directed to go down one street. They would get there. Once they got there, they couldn't go down that street. They had to go to another street. So there was a lot of frustration from folks who were not in any way affiliated with the movement, just trying to maneuver around it. Is it possible for you to estimate how many people are involved in the direct action in lower Manhattan. The Bloomberg administration was saying as of last night that they were gearing up for potentially tens of thousands of people. And I don't know if they just put out a very large number so that it would look small by comparison and look like a failure in, you know, in, in the light of day. Or uh, what, what, what kind of numbers can you put to this if you can? Well, I can tell you what I can see right in front of me, which is there are several hundred people right here in Zuccotti Park. And then I can tell you that when I arrived here this morning, initially it didn't seem like it was the turnout was going to be very strong. I got here about 6.45 this morning. There weren't that many people here, but right around 7 o'clock, which was the time that they did want people to gather, you know, the numbers started to increase. And then throughout the morning, different protests had sort of split off and fanned out across the financial district. They did have some folks here from um, 32BJ who are helping organize the actual marches, and they were doing that, they said, intentionally. They wanted people to be marching in smaller groups. At one point, though, I was sort of stuck in an intersection at, at right near the corner of Zuccotti Park by Broadway. The police presence was very heavy. Um, I, I would wonder if part of the reason why the Bloomberg administration talked about the tens of thousands of people they thought might turn out to, to justify having such a strong police presence. And I can tell you there are uh, police officers at intersections throughout the financial district. You couldn't go onto another block without proving either that you worked there or that you lived there. Even I have a, you know, a police-issued press pass with my photograph on it. For, for some officers, they were very courteous. They would let me go through. They knew that I was trying to do my job. They were trying to do their job. Some police officers were very aggressive. They didn't care what kind of credentials you had. If you didn't work on that block, you weren't going on that block. WNYC's Bridget Bergen at Zuccotti Park. Thanks a lot. We'll keep checking back with you. Thanks. And on that subway exit question, we also received an email, and we can't confirm that it was happening, and we can't confirm that this email is true, but this is the talk that's going on around this question today. Um, this email from a listener says, the people threatening to obstruct subway stations are imposters trying to give Occupy Wall Street a bad 
image. So we can't speak to the accuracy of the claim. We are not reporting what one of the major networks was reporting a short time ago, that subway exits were being blocked, because um, we have no evidence that that's actually the case. But I wanted to, to pass that along, especially since you may have heard it elsewhere. We continue right now with one of the original organizers of Occupy Wall Street, David Graeber, who is also the author of the very new book, uh, which came out just a few months ago, Debt, the first 5,000 years. And, of course, today is the second month anniversary of Occupy Wall Street, which is why all this direct action is taking place today. This was all planned before Mayor Bloomberg decided to expel um, the camping structures and the sleeping bags from Zuccotti earlier this week. That was coincidence or not. This was all planned uh, for today already. And let's go to Wall Street where WNYC Celia Merritt's is standing by. Hi, Ilya. Where are you? What's happening? Hey, Brian. I'm right in front of the exchange, and for the past 45 minutes or so, I've been watching uh, protesters sort of led to this area um, and loaded into police vans. I'm looking at one right now. It's mostly full, probably 20, 25 uh, people on it looking out of the windows, all in plastic handcuffs. Um, and uh, on their way into the van, they've been talking to the press, uh, telling us, how it happened, most of them saying they weren't doing anything in particular. The police just sort of seemed to arrest them and, and, uh, and bring them in. So well, it's, a very, it's a weird sort of ironic scene because we are on Wall Street in front of the exchange, and I've seen a lot, quite a few traders come down, take pictures, um, just sort of watch the spectacle. Um, I've even seen a few cheers, but, but mainly it just sort of seems to be the, the spectacle of uh, traitors uh, just a few feet away from the, uh, from the protesters who are protesting against them. Huh. We just heard a very noisy scene at Zuccotti Park behind WNYC's Bridget Bergen before the break. It sounds very quiet where you are. Yes, this is an island of calm. I mean, it, it just so happens that, that right in front of the exchange is probably the most secure place in New York City right now. I'm not joking when I say I could probably see, you know, 40 or 50 uh, police officers right now just from where I stand, and we're surrounded by tons and tons of barriers. So it, it sort of makes sense that that's the place where they're bringing the arrestees and, uh, and loading them into the van. Was there any success of trying to disrupt or delay the ringing of the opening bell at the stock exchange this morning? Well, I, you know, I tried to get in um, myself, and uh, they wouldn't let me. And uh, from what I've heard, there wasn't any success in that, uh, but, but I don't know that right now. And what about these unconfirmed reports of attempts to block subway exits so people cannot go to work on Wall Street? Is there any truth to that as far as you could tell? Not from what I've seen here, and I'm close to a 2-3 stop, the Wall Street stop, and also a JMZ exit, and people have been coming out of those subway exits, uh, albeit, uh, you know, kind of kind of squished between the police barriers and the buildings. Uh, often, often people have said they've been routed very inconvenient ways to get to their work, but they are, in fact, able to exit the subway stations, as far as I can tell. All right, so we're going to have to conclude that, despite a report by one of the major networks, to the contrary, that as far as we can tell, no one is blocking subway exits in Lower Manhattan or anywhere else. WNYC's Ilya Merritt's at the Stock Exchange. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. And back to David Graeber. David, yeah, you call yourself... Course, by the way. Yeah. David, go ahead. What? 
I was going to say, for what it's worth, it seems very unlikely the people I know would be blocking subway exits because we all know that the people that we'd actually like to block from Wall Street don't take the subway. Let me ask you a word. Uh, they don't block the subway. They all take their uh, chauffeur-driven escalates. Exactly. As um, someone who is an anthropologist, uh, a scholar, world-renowned in the field of anthropology, but also someone who embraces the term anarchist for yourself. What does that mean? And does it mean you're anti-capitalist? Yes. Um, yeah, it means that we believe that it would be possible to have a society based on human solidarity and actual freedom. And we think of freedom as being without structures of systematic coercion. Um, an anarchist form of organization is any form which can exist without somebody with a gun ultimately showing up and saying, okay, everybody shut up and do what you're told. Um, pretty much any form of organization that could exist without that could be an anarchist form of organization. Do you think the Occupy movement is anti-capitalist, which could doom it to irrelevance pretty quickly when the word gets out, or is it for a progressive capitalism that respects profits and entrepreneurship as you know, good things or maybe the only economic system that can actually work, but with decent rules and decent taxes to prevent exploitation and inequality and unaccountability of the kind we see today. Is that a meaningful distinction to you between being anti-capitalist and for progressive capitalism? I think there's people who would be on either side of that involved in Occupy Wall Street. And I think we have a certain points where we all agree, um, which is that you know, what we have in America today, we call it democracy, but it's not. We don't really have a democratic system. We have a system where bribery has been effectively made illegal, where money controls everything. And therefore, capitalists essentially control politicians and use them to grant themselves opportunities to extract money from people. I and mean, it hardly can be described as capitalism, even. Now, whether we want to move on from that to a society where those things are merely controlled or whether we want we think the problems are fundamental and we have to move to a different type of economic system entirely well people differ on that that's a long-term question short-term question i think there's very strong agreement and when it comes to capitalism i mean i think what we have to remember is that people in america are a lot more radical than the sort of mainstream media allows to be represented i saw a poll the other day um where they ask people, what would you prefer for, for America, capitalism or socialism? Well, you know, capitalism won, but among people between 15 and 25, it was about evenly split. Um, in fact, about a third, slightly more than a third were for capitalism, about a third were for socialism, and about a third didn't know. Um, I don't know what they meant by socialism there. I, I assume they just meant whatever capitalism is, that's the other thing. I'm for that. But, you know, that means that two-thirds of young Americans are willing to at least consider getting rid of capitalism entirely. You should think about that. It means capitalism has a bad reputation in America today, I think, given what's going on. And socialism already had a bad reputation in America, so nothing's any good. Exactly. Well, you know, I mean, I would say we should move on to a new economic system. There's a lot of possibilities. The world does not lack for smart people who could figure out different ways to organize and arrange things. Miguel in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC with David Graber. Hello, Miguel. Hi, Brian. A um, couple of questions that I have. Well, I, I'd like to say first that I'm glad that David is talking about other modes of economic systems. I, I, you know, I think that we've been kind of brainwashed to, to believe that there's only one way, which is, uh, which is a global uh, capitalism system. 
and I don't know. That, I don't know if there's a lot of knowledge of any other system. But that, that was my question. What I wanted to say is that uh, the uh, the presidential elections are happening in Spain this weekend on Sunday. They're actually, you know, elections for Senate, Congress, and President. It's pretty huge, basically. And uh, the 15M movement decided to kind of stay away from politics. Uh, they just didn't want to uh, be identified with politicians or parties or anything like that. Uh, so I wanted to ask David, uh, looking at the election next year, uh, 2012, what do you think the Occupy movement is going to be doing and whether it's going to position itself anywhere in the political um, um, spectrum? Well, I think the Occupy movement is not going to turn into a movement that endorses political candidates, let alone campaigns for them. I think that the power of the movement is to say is its refusal to do that, and its refusal to make specific demands of the powerful. Uh, what made it catch fire was it took a moral stand to say this system is fundamentally corrupt. And it turns out that mm, enormous numbers of Americans share that feeling. Now, in terms of how it might affect the political outcome, that's a different question. But I think that um, what we have served to do is to bring items onto the agenda, which everybody in America was thinking about, but no one was really talking about in either the political circles or the mainstream press. And that's going to affect the elections in all sorts of ways. So if the movement is not going to get involved in electoral politics, I think everybody's wondering, will it at least... Uh, coalesce around any specific policy demands or policy items. I know that's one of the things that you argued against back last summer when the movement was forming, at least I've read, that uh, that there was a thought to organize around one very high-profile, very specific policy item, and yeah, you were against that. Adbusters had what is our one specific demand. Um, they were looking at it from a marketing perspective. Adbusters are a group of people who work in the marketing industry and kind of hate it and want to join the other side. But they still think like that. So they were like, we need to have a catchy phrase. And actually, we came up with a catchy phrase uh, better than theirs. We came up with the 99%. But they also wanted to have like one demand. And you know, with a great idea from a marketing perspective, it's not a really good idea from an organizing perspective. What we wanted to do is bring people together to talk about their real lives and their real problems, and demands will come from that. But even framing them as demands is like recognizing the legitimacy of the people who were then asking to enact those demands. Um, we prefer the language of visions and solutions. But if you're not going to recognize the legitimacy of, let's say, the Congress of the United States... How are you going to get anything done? Well, we seem to be getting things done. We seem to have changed the political discourse. If you look at the history of social movements in America, you need to have a directly democratic movement. You need to have a grassroots movement that envisions a new kind of society, new way of dealing with each other, new forms of democracy. That means creating a space of autonomy where you can experiment with those things and show that they're possible. Because most Americans are bred brought up to both believe we're a great democratic nation and this is what we have to be proud of, but also to believe that democracy isn't really possible. We want to show them that it is. Now, you need an autonomous space. That doesn't mean that other people cannot go out and take advantage of the fact that we put these things on the table to propose specific policy ideas. Those people are out there already. There's lots of people with all sorts of very important and interesting ideas floating around, and they have to deal with the government. They have to organize themselves in a hierarchical way in order to do so. They have to form themselves as NGOs and nonprofits and so forth, which is fine. Um, they can do their work, and we'll 
feed issues to them and show them what people are thinking. But they need their pressure from the left. They need um, the prospect of a real social movement for anybody to consider them relevant at all. David Graeber, an original organizer of the Occupy Wall Street movement and the author of Debt, The First 5,000 Years. We really appreciate you spending so much time with us on this two-month anniversary of uh, Occupy at Zuccotti Park and articulating so much of uh, what happened and, and what the movement stands for for you. Thank you very much. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Bye-bye. And so now uh, you know a little bit more about how this broad and deep river of discontent that went partially underground for a while has suddenly burst forth in a Niagara of voices that are saying, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Now rather than add any of uh, my own comments to the mix right now, I'm going to pass that torch on to a couple of younger people. One is a young man who I've mentioned before and he's been on the front lines of the street action since day one. His name is Tim Poole, and while he's one of my favorite live video streamers, he is by far not the only one. In fact, I was uh, actually able to catch the video cast from Boston where Tim was helping Boss Ryan uh, get up to speed on live streaming, and it really paid off a few days later when Boss Ryan traveled to D.C. and provided some of the most significant coverage of the action taking place in the nation's capital over that week. And out here on the West Coast, uh, well, we've got a whole raft of video journalists as well, one of my favorites being Sky Adams. And I should point out that on my new OccupySalon.us blog, I've added a couple of top-level pages, uh, one of which has links to some of these video streams that I've been following and talking about. The other new page is where I've begun dumping some of the raw audio recordings that I've made from a few of the streams that I've been following. And uh, basically, this is just a lot of raw audio that uh, maybe some of our artist friends may be able to use in their own productions and podcasts. But getting back to what I want to play for you next, it's a recording of an interview that Tim Poole gave to the Majority Report, which I believe you can find at majority.fm. I actually found this on YouTube, though, and uh, I'll link to it in the program notes for today's podcast, which you can get to, of course, via psychedelicsalon.us. Now here's that interview. On the phone, it's a uh, pleasure to welcome to the program um, one of the guys involved in my uh, favorite uh, Occupy Wall Street feed. I'm talking about the other 99, Tim Poole. Tim, welcome to the program. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. Now, uh, give us a little background. When did you... um, uh, did you start doing this on your own? How many of there are you, and when did you start? Well, there's, we started with four of us. Uh, there's Henry James Ferry, Will McLeod, Jesse LaGreca, who most of you probably know, and then me, Tim Poole. And we've been doing this since the very beginning of Occupy Wall Street. It's uh, sort of been a snow, uh, snowball rolling down a hill. You know, as time goes on, we build more momentum. And we, I guess we saw a really big spike in that this past week. Right. And, um, uh, you know, my, my favorite moment, I think, uh, in watching your coverage uh, was the, uh, the night that uh, people marched in front of City Hall and then began to move up Broadway to uh, Union uh, Square. And at one point, uh, the protesters grabbed the kettling net and uh, began to run through the street to it. And I still, uh, we, we, of course, played the, the clip uh, at the time, but it still resonates in my head. Uh, this night belongs to Occupy Wall Street. Um, it, give me a sense of what's been the most sort of um, 
dramatic moments for you uh, as you've you've been covering this? There was obviously that night with the, the occupiers taking the orange kettling that really just left me in awe. And that's you, know, you heard me yell tonight belongs to Occupy Wall Street. And um, they started the whole thing that in their head and chanted, who's net, our net. There was uh, one of the other most intense events for me was when the vandals who were draining the tires on the NYPD vehicles, you know, sort of rushed at me, trying to get me to turn the camera off. And, uh, you know, they're swinging at me. One guy grabbed me. And then I think another really just awe-inspiring moment is when the freight truck was trying to leave the park with all of the possessions, and there was, you know, about 50 to 75 of the protesters linked arms, and they chanted, we are the 99%, and the police were pushing on the crowd with the barricades, trying to break them apart, and they couldn't do it, and the freight truck actually had to back up and retreat. It was, you know, everyone cheered in victory. Um, and uh, tell me, uh, you know, what, what, what is your agenda? I mean, how do you perceive yourself? Are you a reporter? Are you an activist? Is, uh, is there something in between? I mean, what you're doing is a relatively new phenomena in media, to be uh, live streaming like this with so few uh, bars to entry. Um, what, what, what do you, how do you perceive yourself? I, I perceive myself as an activist. I've always perceived myself as an activist. I'm doing this for transparency, which I feel is really the most important thing when it comes to you know, policy and historical events. Too, too often, or actually it's a fact, that history is written by the winners. And on Tuesday and Thursday, that just wasn't true. History was just written uh, on the live broadcast through my point of view. And... Um... I mean, where do you, where, 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 I mean, I think that's a very interesting point because I think this, uh, you know, Occupy Wall Street, in many respects, um, the documentation that you do and the media that the, the movement itself puts out is redefining how it can, uh, the entire, um, the, both the process and the story simultaneously. I mean, it's it's interesting to me because, you know, when uh, Occupy Wall Street first started, it got very little media coverage, but managed to grow despite the fact that it wasn't getting the traditional media coverage uh, because uh, they were putting it out themselves. Um, now, when, when did you when you started? What was what were your hopes? I guess I really didn't have any. I. We, we started working on a way to do a live broadcast, and I found the Ustream mobile app, and I, I thought, hey, that's really easy to do. I can just point my cell phone. And, we, you know, the original intention was we were going to have a bit of political theater where Henry would do his conversation with the 1%. But, you know, we saw an arrest happen, and the start, action started happening, and so it quickly changed to spontaneous on-the-ground reporting using a live broadcast that people could just you know, see what's happening inside for themselves. And did you, um, uh, is that what you're using, only an iPhone? Is that it? Well, I'm actually using a Galaxy S2. But, yeah, that's about it. What, what's a Galaxy X2? It's a Galaxy S. It's a, it's a droid phone. Uh, it's okay. a Sprint Unlimited. So you shoot all of it through your phone? Yeah, I have the Sprint Galaxy S2 with unlimited data. And it's hooked up to an XPAL 18,000 uh, milliamp battery. Wow. 
Interesting. I had no yeah, idea. Actually, I, I, for some reason, I presumed you guys had a, had a camera rig, but um, uh, just because the quality is, is is that good. Yeah, I mean, we it's it's got. A, I mean, I feel like I'm doing a commercial here, but it's got a eight megapixel, 1080p high desk uh, camera in the back of it. And um, just yeah, for full I, disclosure's sake, I, just for full disclosure's sake, uh, you you do, you're you're not a paid spokesman, correct? No, I am absolutely not. <laughs> All right. Well, sorry. Now, tell me also how this evolved uh, with you and Henry, because when I first started watching it, uh, Henry seemed to be sort of the uh, correspondent. And uh, then at one point, you guys uh, had uh, multiple cameras going, uh, the other 99 and uh, the other 99, too. Uh, so how does that work out? Is it just a question of uh, who's available that day? Uh, um, uh, who's able to get down there? What are the inner workings? When it first started, the sort of dynamic we had was that I was just handling the technology and Henry was actually giving the reports. But, you know, as I'm the one who set it up and knew how to make it work, when, with this action happening, you know, especially the, the Oakland Solidarity March that we were just talking about, it was hard for us to stay together because you have just, you know, we had 2,000 people in the street. I'm running full speed to try and film it and Henry gets lost in the crowd. And I was sort of, you know, put in the spot to take over the narration. And, it, you know, just with Tuesday, with the eviction, Henry and I were just not, we are, you know, we are two different uh, meetings. I was at the Spokes Council to see what that was going on. That's an, Spokes Council is an organizational system for Occupy Wall Street. So when the eviction started, I was by myself, and I had to do the reporting on my own. And so with the you know, the success from that and everyone sort of clamored to keep the stream going, Henry decided to use a second channel for the other 99. And so we actually ended up with two, you know, with multi-view from, you know, on the ground. You can actually switch back and forth when you're on our channel. And you, um, uh, your, your feed, uh, I believe it was on the, um, uh, certainly last Thursday, uh, was picked up by multiple Sort of uh, mainstream media outlets, corporate media outlets. Yeah, uh, Tuesday, Tuesday as well. We were on Al Jazeera, uh, Time.com. Uh, I also heard that we were on Reuters. Uh, it's, it's, it's a huge, huge list that you know everybody. Was, uh, Huffington Post is one. They were just you, we were the primary source at that point. And so, what are you doing now? I mean, how do you uh, how do you support yourself doing this? Uh, it seems to me that you do it almost every day. I mean, how do you how do you support yourself doing this? Well, initially, I was living off of my savings, but people had made contributions to the other 99 since day one, and that, you know, provided us with the resources to be on the ground providing this coverage. And with the recent exposure we got since the eviction to the, uh, you know, sort of reclamation of the park, we've actually, our donations have increased significantly. And um, uh, so what's next for you guys? Do you continue to... Um, uh... To, to do this coverage, are you, um, are, are you helping? You know, I've watched other streams, frankly, and I just wish that you guys had trained them because I think, you know, what, what you both do uh, quite well, from my experience at least viewing, is um, you are uh, fairly measured in your coverage. You're, you're fairly careful uh, to clarify when uh, you've witnessed something or when you are, uh, you know, sourcing the information you get so that we know uh, the LRAD uh, sticks out in my mind. 
that you had multiple sources telling you that they had seen it and you made it clear that that was the case. Um, and I, 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 I wonder if you guys have been in touch with other streamers around the country to help advise them on how to go about approaching it. Um, uh, has there been any, any conversations like that, or is it just uh, you're operating on your own? Well, we don't, we don't coordinate with other teams, but I have given a lot of technical advice as to how uh, I, I do the broadcast. Most of the other teams use the live stream program, we use Ustream, and uh, Ustream.tv actually has the mobile app where you broadcast right from your phone, mm -hmm. and live stream actually, you'll see these teams walking around with laptops and webcams with battery, with, you know, external batteries and hotspots, so they're, you know, they don't have the versatility. Now, as for sort of the narration, the reporting, I spoke with with Vlad from Global Rev, and he said, you know, what you guys do is exactly what everyone should do. You know, giving your report a narration of what's happening so that people can get a better understanding of it. That's, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's fantastic. And um, so uh, we can expect more from you guys in the future, yes? Yeah, I plan on being in Oakland on December 12th, where they've actually planned to shut down all of the ports. So that's, you know, my, my real hope. December 12th in Oakland, and uh, we'll keep an eye. Uh, the website is, uh, well, the Ustream is Ustream.tv forward slash the other 99. And uh, what's your website? We are the other 99.com. We are the other 99.com. Tim Poole, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Uh, really appreciate your work, and uh, you're doing a great job, and keep it up. And in case you weren't able to keep up with the West Coast port protest on December 12th, well, Tim didn't make it to Oakland that day, but instead had the bad luck of being at the Long Beach port blockage action, which uh, essentially got rained out by a massive Pacific storm that drenched all of Southern California for a few days. But amazingly, there were actually several ports that were blocked that day, and while not every port on the coast was blocked, a movement without a leader managed to do something that hasn't been seen in a long time. Uh, maybe ever, actually. You know, while it's been a long time since strikes have shut down more than one port on the West Coast, to my knowledge, this is the very first time that ports were shut down, not by striking union members, but they were shut down by average citizens who were exposing the horrible working conditions and low wages our dock workers and the truckers who support them are suffering from. And to me, that's the true spirit of the Occupy movement. People coming together to help their neighbors, in spite of the oppressive governments that they may live under. Of course, the people who only get their news from the corporate media uh, have no idea what an incredible success the Occupy movement had in blocking some of the ports on the coast that day. And before I forget, if you want to go back and listen to some of the reporting that Tim Poole did on that historic November 17th march, uh, again, it's in my Day 66 podcast, which is uh, podcast number 291 here in the salon. And lest you forget, this is history in the making that's being recorded by the people actually on the ground at the time and not by some institutionalized historian 300 years from now. So if you missed that podcast, I think you would be well served to go back and listen for yourself how Tim Poole transformed from a techie geek into one of the Occupy movement's leading journalists. And the secret of his success is simple, I think. Unlike somebody like myself, who, if I was streaming, would probably just point the camera and let the action speak for itself, 
What Tim does is to add his own commentary as we walk and sometimes run along with him uh, during some of these momentous early actions that one day will be the stuff of legend. Of course, these legends are going to have to be extremely factual because most of Tim's videos are archived at ustream.tv slash the other 99, which uh, is his streaming channel. And again, I've embedded it on our OccupySalon.us blog to make it a little easier to find. Now, I'm not sure where Tim is now, but the last I heard, he was heading to San Francisco to test one of the new drones that some of the streamers have been using to carry their cameras high enough uh, to cover these large marches that have begun to pop up here and there. But I should add that our valiant video streamers have already become singled out, uh, at least by the New York Police Department. I was uh, actually able to record some of the audio stream from one of uh, Liberty Park's leading journalists, who also happens to be named Lorenzo, I should add. And on December 12th, the same day that the West Coast port actions were going on, the Occupy Wall Street group was also on the march in Manhattan. But this time, the cops rounded up all of the live video streamers first and got them out of the way so that they couldn't document what this highly militarized police force was up to. And I'm pretty sure that it was Lorenzo's stream that I watched as he was streaming from the inside of a paddy wagon, waiting to be taken to jail. Later on, I heard that uh, most of the equipment of the Occupy Wall Street media team had been confiscated or destroyed by the cops. So, so much for free speech and free press, huh? And uh, while, if we want to, we can focus on all of the creepy things that the screwheads in Washington are up to, uh, everything from censoring the Internet to using the military to indefinitely detain any of us who disagree with the establishment. Well, we can uh, focus on that if we want, but that isn't the here and now. Uh, at least in the here and now, we can still talk about these things freely and share them on the net. And so today I want to close with another comment from one of our fellow saloners who had this to say. Hi there, Lorenzo. It's Jarrett here over at Feedback Arts Elysium Studio. Just checking in, and I'd like to engage the Psychedelic Salon regarding the Occupy movement. Before doing so, I would like to express to you my sincere gratitude. The information which you provide costs many people who recorded these talks a pretty penny, and the wherewithal to stash these audio gems somewhere until they found their way into your hands could have been quite an imposition. Thanks be to you, your colleagues, and to the MAPS community, that is the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies community, who realize the great help these sacred plant teachers provide. Many people cannot understand why you are using the salon as a platform for the Occupy movement. It's my guess that a few of the saloners may not have psychedelic experience, and they're just curious. So for them and any other individual who doesn't understand why you might be doing this, I will provide my perspective here. Since I'm a painter, I'll paint you a picture. First, imagine that you are feeling different than you've ever felt. A panic comes over your consciousness as you realize there is an emergence of some phenomena which has taken possession of your person, and the panic along with the phenomenal sensations are increasing rapidly. We reach a stage of fight or flight with these sensations and realize that we are along too far to turn back. So we embrace the experience as our own and begin following it to whatever end that becomes. We choose this route through the experience because there is no fighting or fleeing because these sensations are inside of us. As the experience unfolds, the fears and terrors give rise to a sense of understanding that we have entered new territory. The panic which unfolded reordered the priorities and intentions of our life, and we have a deeper sense of meaning regarding what life is and why we're involved with it. We realize that as long as we are still breathing... 
there is a sense of dawn approaching and the cold of the night is on its way out. You've unfolded the wiggly episode of a psychedelic experience to reorient you to the light and align yourself on the side of life and everything that entails. Flora, fauna, feelings, experiences, the good, the bad, the life, and eventually the death. These things cannot be separated from one another, and they are all unfolding now, here. All of the transgressions before this psychedelic episode of understanding are revisited in a new light and reevaluated to see if the path coincides with the path of life, sustainability, and the evolution not only for ourselves, but every aspect of life mentioned earlier. So I'll tie this painting to an analogy of the Occupy movement. We have entered a dark passage of life where we've been told one thing while we experience the antithesis. We realize at this juncture that our perception of the world has been dictated to us by our culture, and by stepping outside of our culture, we're stepping into another. We realize these cultures are getting smaller and more fractioned with time, and we're not understanding each other as well as we used to, and often we're pitted against other cultures uh, to conform or perish. All of a sudden, it's our culture which is being called into question, and this culture with which we are involved is not so well defined. Over time, it becomes clear that the culture which is in question is the one which has a differing opinion, an alternate perspective, or more specifically, the one which doesn't provide enough money to the economy. A brief look at what cultures do provide enough money to the economy, well, they paid more lobbying to the government than they paid in taxes. In turn, the government provides more financial incentives to these corporations which provide more lobbying power to the government. On top of it all, we have a private banking institution at the very top of the structure which prints money on loan to the U.S. taxpayers with interest accruing. We're not allowed to know who these high banking people are by their own intention. If you knew you had a tapeworm attached to the artery in your intestine and it literally was sucking the life from your body, you would do whatever was in your power to have the thing removed even if it meant putting you in debt for the rest of your life because you want to live. But what type of life can be had as a debt slave? So you find that you're experiencing feelings which you never had before. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> For being a citizen in the land of the free feels more like a prison sentence sometimes, and it's getting more uncomfortable with every bit of legislation which takes away our inalienable rights. Uh, let's look at uh, S. 1867, the Defense Authorization Act. Uh, how about the Patriot Act before it? SOPA, uh, Digital Rights Management, you name it. So now you hit the fight or flight stage. You realize that your citizenship bars you from living in a foreign country. Sure, you can visit other lands if you have the money, but taking up residence elsewhere is an option for very few of us. So, we dig our heels in and confront the beast. We assemble to exercise the rights granted to us by the amended Constitution. Then we see the rights are being confiscated before our eyes as we get dragged off of public land beaten, pepper sprayed, and made to pay $5,000 fine for our arrest, doing what is, or what was, our right to peaceably assemble to protest. We take a look at the candidates for the upcoming 2012 election year, and hear that their focus is ending Obama's war on religion, which is an outright lie because there is no attack on religion in this country, or getting gays out of the military. Excuse me, how does one feed a family of four with an argument about religion or arguing about human rights as a gay individual? We then realize that this has become a control culture game of hide-and-seek. The establishment is so focused on taking away the rights which we bestowed upon ourselves that they have blatantly made this obvious that we are the enemy for not believing as they do. 
Since we have such differing conceptual ideas of why we should find alternatives to fossil fuels, why we should not destroy the lungs of the world, our rainforests, and why we have little need to pollute if we're not in a hurry to chase the dollar. In a sense, we're being told that if we aren't complicit with purchasing the latest gizmo or the largest TV, we're out of the loop, as all non-cell phone users already are aware. Try finding a payphone these days in a nice part of town. Uh, this one cell phone example illustrates to us how we are being asked to fend for ourselves, and that is exactly what we will be doing. However, we won't be alone. As the control culture finds, uh, finds ways to alienate us and make us feel left out because we aren't Republican, Christian, a heterosexual football fan, and a weekend barbecue wizard, we learn that our next-door uh, neighbor is a Buddhist, uh, grows his own vegetables like I do, and doesn't own a TV just like me. We also find that the Catholic across the street is gay and has a volunteer job assisting homeless to find uh, housing. You find out then you feel much more uh, comfortable and have much more in common with these people than with a goon in a suit on Wall Street who has repossessed your other neighbor's home without just cause because his mortgage was bought up in a securities fraud with no oversight. So basically, it won't be until the last illusion participant loses their public servant pension for, because their elected leader uh, basically gave it away, <laughs> then this country will begin the difficult transition back to sanity. <clears throat> so as much as I have learned from the sacred plant teachers about life, I see their lessons all around us in the Occupy movement. Without question, we are one without percent delineation. We are one, the people. How will we exact justice on those who are teaching us to fend for ourselves? By forcing the people to live in a way which is not consistent with the natural course of human dignity, these bring up very uncomfortable feelings, and these leaders are presenting the chance for us to free ourselves once again, just like the sacred plant teachers do. We should be grateful for these leaders' effort. I put leaders in quotations, obviously. <clears throat> no high-dose trip is without its snags or snares, and this is the highest we have been in history. Uh, pardon the pun. Uh, this is high society. Technology has presented to us a unique window of truth called the Internet, where you can have personal debates with yourself using all of the conflicting information until you reach a conclusion, your conclusion, that life is worth living if we don't impede upon others' lives in the process. <clears throat> this includes not impeding on our own lives. So as we wrap up the trip and reflect on the lessons learned and why we need to know these things, we set a course for life to be consistent with our vision as, as consistent with our vision as we possibly can. Uh, we question the imposition of authority when it conflicts with common sense. Uh, we reach a consensus of understanding to validate our direction, and then we continue on our way. We strive for autonomy, even if we have to borrow a cup of rice from a neighbor. That's okay, uh, because we have some wheat which they need too. So in a sense, it is a collective goal that we can achieve what we put our minds to, especially when the current life we lead conflicts with our vision of what life is. As Socrates and Dr. Tim both were subject to accusations of corrupting the youth, all they did was ask the youth to think for themselves. Something that today, if it is not executed by everyone, could be the greatest threat to your life and the lives of those who you love. If you can step up to this challenge to think for yourself, a really good test is to read Deuteronomy in the Old Testament of the Bible on acid. <laughs> you'll have plenty of time, and you'll be called time and time again to think for yourself, to see the difference between life then and life now, as well as the differences between you and the culture in which you may have been raised or the culture in which you may be living.
So the examples that I provided, uh, those examples being uh, uh, religion or homosexuality, are just examples to illustrate how unique each individual really is. Um, you can put two people with the same exact religion together in a room. They may be even from the same family and parishioners of the same church. And you can sit down and ask them questions about their specific religion. And you may find that they have completely differing views, yet they call themselves the same denomination. This is all just a, a, to prove that we are unique. I, I mean no harm, and I do not want to offend anybody by using those specific religious or uh, sexual terms. Um, I do want to thank you, Lorenzo. Uh, I really honor and respect your work. I think that what you're doing is such a necessity this day and age. And uh, lots of love to you. Thanks. Well, thank you for that, Jarrett. But really, all of the thanks actually should go out to you and to all of our other saloners who are using some of their time to become better informed about what is really going on in this world and who are also doing what they can to help us all increase our collective consciousness a little bit each day. And if you want to add your own voice to the mix, you can send me a message or an MP3 file at lorenzo at occupysalon.us. And now I'm going to close, but I'm afraid that I have to close on a rather sad note. And that is, I have to report the death of one of our supporters and guests here in the salon, Eric Hart. As you will remember, Eric was our guest speaker on podcast number 265, which is titled Lawyers Lie, and it's one of our most important podcasts. Eric, you're going to be missed by us all. Thank you for everything you've done. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Human, dying, dying, artificial, and extraterrestrial.